0: everyone it's me I'm back with my the original man the man the original guy who started mind rolling with me it's it's like years now ago david it's amazing time flies as they say david silver dave happy to have you here on a sunday afternoon
1: thank you very much it's mm-hmm. good to be here yeah time that's the biggest cliche ever invented time flies but, but, but the, the my einsteinian quantum feeling about that i'm not just being pretentious here. it just goes much faster when you're you know at this point yeah it right. does i mean think of like 10 years ago okay so 10 years ago it was 2011 you know <laughs> i mean it's like it's nothing
0: yeah yeah i know i, I know. just wanted to make that deep That's like Saturday Night Live. They used to have deep thoughts. (laughs) We're going to have some deep thoughts. Actually, everybody, David, uh, as you know know from the – it's been a while. It's been a number of months, I believe, since we've done this, uh, done another podcast. But the one we did before, uh, David uh, recounted stories from his – the book that he's finishing as we speak – Um, which is uh, his Mingling with Remarkable Men and Women. That's my title for it. Uh, (laughs) David, I know, has another one, but we're not going to tell it because it's secret. So we'll just go with uh, Mingling with Remarkable People. Um, But basically, uh, I and everybody who heard this was so entranced by these stories, which all of them point, by the way, all of them point to some. We were talking, Dave and I, about this yesterday, and I was telling him about our uh, new app that we're putting together. It'll be a combination of Ramdas. It's called Ramdas Be Here Now, and of course, it'll have all of the stuff that we had on this other app called Heart Mind, and which emanates from Be Here Now Network, which is what we're on this moment. And uh, so, I uh, I just thought, well, let's talk about some of the themes that we seem to run generally um, from Love Serve Remember Foundation, and see how they might even fit with uh, some of the themes that are in this book, and we talked about so I'm gonna mention a couple, this will be like one of those shows, I'm gonna mention something, and it's a question, and you'll have the answer, kind of a thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay, hang on. I'm going there as we speak. See, this is all live, folks.
1: Yeah, this is Uh,
0: more authentic, basically. It yeah, does, because we don't sit here studying this, because, you know. Yeah, you remember that thing we did with Jung? We did a whole uh, podcast around <laughs> Jung, and everybody <laughs> writing back, wow, you know, the kind of expertise that you gentlemen have. <laughs> That's Absolutely. So, you know, we were going, this is, we don't know anything. We just <laughs> like some things, and we like to share some of them things there, you know. Okay, so I'm going to pick a topic, and then you'll see if it ring. A story might ring with it. Oh, okay. But you know what? There's something I wanted to do before we did that. Okay, do that. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is. Okay, I got this book. It's it looks phenomenal. It's called Sovereign Self, and the name of the person is what got me, Acharya Shunya. That, to me, is like a master of emptiness, right? But it's a Hindu, and it's this uh, wonderful uh, 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 Indian woman, uh, and she's completely an Advaita, non-dual person day, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also uh, a master of Ayurved, Ayurvedic practice. And she's the first female head of her 2,000-year-old spiritual lineage, Indian spiritual lineage, uh, and she's president of the Awakened Self Foundation. Now, I want to join that, yeah. you know. Anyhow, so I just opened up. I thought this would be something for for us. This is like everybody out there. See, Dave and I, we call, we talk, and he might have read some book that has some just gem in it, and we share it. And we're doing the same thing here. He has no idea, right? We did not no. talk about this, right? No. Yeah. No. Um, so, this is around walking the path of discernment, and in, in uh, I think it's from the Sanskrit, vivek, vivek, is that, so the practice, th- just let me read a couple of things, and you'll, you'll see how much it relates, it's really quite fantastic. The practice of discernment, or viveka, involves a moment-by-moment moment deliberation before acting or reacting, how you do that on the reacting side, I don't know. It includes closely examining our mind's contents, thoughts, beliefs, root motivations, and desires, and asking ourselves if they're healthier. Not healthy. Only when we begin to Actively discern, uh, when we begin actively discerning in life, will we invest in the path of self restraint and self discipline? Two things that Davis and, David and I are very famous for. Um, totally. Without discernment, no, so this is the key. And I thought, this is something that's happening to absolutely all of us on the spiritual path, right? from the beginning, people in the beginning, to people who have been on it for decades. Without without this discernment, the ego can quickly apply spiritual bypassing and imagine itself to be awakened as pure awareness, even publicly announce its enlightenment, only to collapse in a puddle of self-doubt and self-deprecation a few days, weeks, or later. (laughs) <laughs> okay, uh, so to practice discernment, we must be able to distinguish the quality of our mental experience. To me, this is a, you know this is some really highfalutin stuff from Acharya Shunya uh, in terms of uh, the intelli- intellectualization of it. But it, in reality, I think in the West, especially around spiritual practices, having some discernment, I mean, is definitively important. That's why, uh, you know, Dave and I have been involved in this kind of synthesis, really, of practice of both devotion, bhakti, and uh, and the uh, the gyan, the truth, uh, and using the intellect, and using discrimination. That is such a thing, you know. And you were just talking about or Rinpoche I, he really embodies this kind of discrimination, spiritual discrimination. I think I just think it's something, uh, something important for everybody. And uh, maybe, maybe I can get a hold of uh, Acharya Shunya, and we can talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. Sounds fascinating. No, well,
1: it's you know, it's completely parallel with like Sharon Salzberg, you know, and the whole business of. Being able to observe this, this creation, you know, as if you weren't totally attached to it. You know, it takes the ego to make the decision to look at the ego, which doesn't exist in any case. So it's sort of a weird transaction that goes on, but it's necessary. In other words, in meditation, stuff arises. And if you can really become still enough to appreciate that just as much as asanas or cities, miracles, or even whatever it is that is that is yogic, you know, being able to look at your own, because I think that's what you were getting at before, which is, a, you know, the, the vivika component of spiritual practice is possibly the most important thing because you can all learn something and keep learning it, but can you see it in yourself when you need to see it? Uh, you know, like when the time comes, can you? And, um, I had an experience last week which just a a, a very brief version of it I was going for an ultrasound scan at the hospital and I was really kind of nervous because it's it's sort of a serious thing and it, it, this has been almost 2 years of this and I trust the surgeon and I trust the hospital totally actually they're really great but in the few days before I had the um, thing you know before I went to the hospital I noticed in my meditations and in my morning walk and everything, I was just preoccupied with fear. I could see it, tangibly, and feel it. Mm. The only difference was from the last time I went for the scan, and that's not that long ago, it was six months ago, actually. I had come to a point where um, I was able to look at the fear and see that it was just another passing fancy, as it were. Because, I mean, the universe is eternal and, and, time, space is infinite, and we're just this little shape in it, you know, and we're in it, and we're very important to ourselves and everybody we know. However, it disappears, and like, like a thief in the night. And um, I noticed that I was less uptight. I mean, I'm not want to say that. I usually want to say, um, just goes on forever, this thing. But I noticed something. I just noticed, I noticed myself noticing it, if you know what I mean. And I really saw that I was very um, dissatisfied with the amount of space it was taking in anticipation of the future, of which I had no particular control. An ultrasound yeah, right. machine in, in, yeah. in a hospital. But I, I, I felt better. So by thir- the thing was on Friday. By Friday, this had been going on for about three days. Um, by Friday, I was okay with it. It was like, okay, so life, death, goes on, passes. This, that, in, yang, in, out, goodbye, hello. And, <laughs> You know, basically, that yeah. little sort of awareness was traveling through my system. Yeah, in a way that made That's me it. feel
0: a little bit advanced in the spiritual realm. Yeah, awareness, awareness, awareness. Yeah, no. So this discrimination allows one to to develop that awareness, which allows one to shine a light on the projections, the preferences. Right. And uh the way in which uh our motivations just take over. And if if that is uh if a light is turned the light of, of Viveka, spiritual discrimination is turned on to that, things are completely different if you can maintain that. And then that's all about practice and so on anyhow i just wanted to bring i just as you just said before it's 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 highly important uh to to be able to ground oneself uh, in that uh uh from that perspective of awareness and uh and really having some discrimination and not just falling from one thing to another blindly thinking this is the thing or this is what's going to make me the happiest. This is what's going to bring me, uh, ma- uh, you know, at another level, uh, bring me freedom from the obscurations. When indeed, like she said, it's, people, it's really easy to get into bypass land.
1: You know? I mean, that's where, I, I think that's where chanting and those sort of devotional practices really have tangible a value in that journey. Because yes. again, yeah. I always talk about myself because I'm a narcissist. But this morning when I was walking, <laughs> I decided because it's like 80 degrees below zero here, everything's frozen. <laughs> and I just, you know, walking was quite hard. But I put on my uh, Spotify playlist of um, a woman called Raja Lakshmi Sanjay, Raja Lakshmi Sanjay, I highly recommend Raja Lakshmi Sanjay to anyone who's
0: listening. I've never heard this name before oh, and I'm quite well versed. You
1: are, but I, I know it's one of those things. I fell in love with her because she does a, um, a Maha Mitranjaya like no one else. And that's how I discovered her about five years ago. And I've been playing that and then I lost it and I couldn't find it on Spotify or anything. And then suddenly it appeared on Spotify. And then I went to a playlist of like 200 of her songs. <laughs> And she does a lot of Shiva songs and a lot of uh, a lot of Krishna songs, a lot of Govinda songs, and um, they have fairly up-to-date sort of arrangements.
0: The tablet playing is beyond description, and she's okay. amazing. so anyway. we'll put anyway, it away. You're going to have to send. You're going to have to send a link I will. over because I will. we have to. We're talking about something. We want to make sure everybody. Can. Yeah,
1: it's really lovely, and it, what it did for me was it. it, it Knocked out like a boxer, a boxing champion. And knocked out all these random thoughts that were just still trying to get in and mm-hmm. tell me what to do for the day and who to be jealous of and who to think badly of and what to think about myself and how what a lazy swine I am. Once I start listening to Raja Lakshmi, <laughs> I, I just said, that's yeah, over. I got so, one. Yeah. Game,
0: End game, and there's yeah. no more thinking. Yeah, that, that is the truth. Of course, that's what the Hare Krishna people say. You just need to chant the They're name. Right. You don't need it. You're just saying that, you know.
1: I am. I'm, I'm, I'm much yeah. more pretentious than they are. I'm not willing to go to an airport and do that, but they don't do that (laughs) That's your
0: name. No, they can't. And who's going to the airport now? (laughs) Anyhow. Oh, for (laughs) God's sake, it's all over. All right. So here we are. Uh, We've pontificated. That's all the pontification that you're going to get, folks. Uh, Well, maybe. You never know, because we all like pontificating, don't we? A little. Um, So, okay. So, okay. Your turn. you okay. ask me I, I respond hang on guys cuz something just happened oh i lost my sound here we go i can hear you yeah um so i'm going to give a topic and you're going to give uh, a story okay so this is completely off the, the top yeah, okay no i'm going to i got the list here okay did i'm going i'll start yeah where did you get the list from i got a list oh, not your stories, <laughs> oh, the list of the things <laughs> I got a list of the topics, okay, I'm going to start with consciousness and psychedelics. Do you have anything that fits that theme?
1: yeah, um yeah, i do, and it it it, it took place in I think August of nineteen seventy three uh, when I was fortunate enough, in fact, beyond description, fortunate enough to be invited to a, a very amazing ceremony in in South Dakota. And uh, it's um, psychedelic because it involves the plant peyote and uh, deeply involves that, uh, which I'd had a passing acquaintance with maybe a couple of years before 1973. Maybe I'd eaten a button, I did, yeah. And it, it was this remarkable transformation that it gives you the vitality of the plant, the emanation of the plant, the whole thing. But I just did it in a wood forest in South Jersey, actually. And um, I was amazed by how different it was from LSD or mescaline or anything, just completely different, but equally, uh, it shifted you so fast. So anyway, I guess I bragged about, it. I'd taken a button of peyote to someone. And um, at one point I lived on the Upper West Side and I got a phone call from this, this guy who was a filmmaker and he said that um, he'd come into contact with um, a certain Leonard Crowdog, Dog, who was a great and, and renowned medicine man of the Brule Sioux tribe of the Lakota Nation. And that Leonard had come to New York, as his father had before him, uh, to do some ceremonies. Uh, and he wanted uh, people to represent different Ethnic and racial backgrounds And Mark Brownstone, who was the person who linked me with Leonard, had asked, said that I should represent the Upper West Side." <laughs> and, uh, and, and there was, uh, you know, an African-American there, a Native American, an Asian woman and a South Asian woman, as I remember, and a very diverse group of people. but those were the people that I remember being at the front of the ceremony. OK, so it was on uh, po- uh, not Central Park po- West. It was on West End Avenue in a, a kind of a rooftop apartment. And it lasted from sundown to sunup, which is the way the peyote ceremony lasts. And it was what they call a moonfire ceremonies, ceremony. The, the, the Brule Sioux masters uh, do two kinds of ceremonies. One is the moonfire, uh, which is uh, sort of Advaitic, and the crossfire, which has a Christian element to it, at least in the, in the um, calling of, of Christ consciousness in the, in the meeting. So we had this meeting in this beautiful apartment in New York, and it was just amazing. And we had to do it in the traditional way. And um, it, it just it was so transcendental and so beautiful that every single person there eventually went on the roof in the morning and had some water and orange juice. Uh, you're not allowed to do that during the night. You have to wait till the morning. And um, I didn't know any of these people, actually. And we were, as happens in those kind of situations, we were just unified in this beautiful community of love and gentleness and, uh, and um, amalgamation with nature and the divine. That's all. <laughs> and that was an incredible experience. About three months later, I got a telegram, a Western Union telegram in those days, uh, from the Crow Dog family, uh, Leonard Crow Dog's family, Inviting me to a very special ceremony in South Dakota. And um, would I come? And I, I was sort of, well, you know, I had no idea what they were talking about, really. Another person in New York City was also invited. And he knew about it. And he said, it's an amazing experience you're going to have if you choose to go. Leonard Crowdog's father, Henry Crowdog, who was one of the original peyote medicine men and the founder of the Native American Church, as it's called, which is a peyote church, he and his wife, Mary, were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And they had invited medicine men from all over the United States uh, of all kinds. And they were all coming. And we were invited as representatives of you know, New York. So I drove to um, South Dakota to the, um, Rosebud Reservation. The bigger one is Pine Ridge. We went to Rosebud, and within the Rosebud Reservation is a thing called Crowdog's Paradise, which is where the Crowdog clan lives. So that's the picture. When we got there, we saw the final stages of the construction of a large hogan, which is a, a temple made of wood, round and huge, with a huge hole in the, ce- in the ceiling. And um, then we were introduced to the Crowdog family and. Shown our teepee. We had a beautiful teepee they made, they prepared for us. And then um, a large number of Native Americans arrived in the next three days. Um, I've forgotten how many, uh, I think about 300. And there were, there were uh, 35, 36, 37 tribes represented. And most of these people were, were peyote masters. <laughs> so the, the crowd was the most intense crowd you could possibly imagine. And um, I spent a huge amount of time with Henry and his wife, Mary, and Leonard, his son. And um, it was a beautiful experience apart from the ceremony, which was beyond description. Um, we were led into the Hogan. Um, before that, we all had to clean the peyote, uh, sit in Len- Henry's kitchen and take out the strychnine and, and then mush it into a huge mush. And then the rules were that once you walked into the Hogan, you were subject to the instructions of the medicine man and roadmaster. And um, there was a minimum of 25 buttons each. If you didn't want to, if that was scary, then don't go in. It was scary. I thought, oh, my God. That's beyond my, what am I doing here? You know, that was emotion. And But we went in. And there were several layers that had been built of pe- people sitting in little tiers, like three tiers, all the way around this huge, huge thing. A roaring fire beyond description was built. And then everybody uh, was uh, treated to spoonfuls of this peyote gruel about four to six times during the night. And they were administered, administered by young um, uh, tribal men who were members of AIM, which was the American Indian Movement. So we all took them, and then they chanted, and then the medicine men, the old ones, all sat together, which is kind of opposite me, as I remember, and soon the peyote came on, and um, my awareness changed totally, and I had no sense of individuality in that room. I was just part of this three, 400 people chanting, they told me that I didn't have to know Lakota, that by the end of the second round of peyote, I would know the language, which I th- found rather, um, <laughs> I didn't believe them. But me and m- my mates and my wife did, in fact, experience it. That by that time, we were just singing in Lakota. And it was easy, and we knew, we sort of knew what they were talking about. And then they, they did started to do all kinds of prayers. And then these cities, And one of the cities, which I recall, and it's so wonderful because there were other people there to see it too. It wasn't like I was just hallucinating, although one could say the whole thing is a hallucination. But anyway, um, at one point the fire chief, there's a a road chief, a fire chief, and a water woman eventually. Uh, The fire chief came forth and spoke in that language, and then he started to blow through his hands, as one does when one's blowing a hot soup. You know, he'd pick up the spoon. <laughs> That's all he did. There's no big bang. And this enormous wave swept across the, swept across the fire. As I say, the fire was huge. And then, um, and this is hard for me to say, because it, I, I really haven't spoken much about this. And then a very large eagle made of fire appeared above the fire. And he spoke to it. And he blew at it and he waved his arms at it, and he admonished it, and then he fell on his knees in front of it, and then he banished it, and we all saw it. And even in that community, which was a community of highly advanced Native American spiritual leaders, uh, there was a, just a, a whoosh that went through the entire Hogan. Like, oh,
0: whoosh, wow,
1: you know. And then um, he did one more. He said there was a great chief, I don't know who it was, some Sioux some Sioux from the past. And he asked the fire to present him to us, you know. And this was being translated by my Comanche friend who went with me and spoke Lakota. He was sitting next to me. He said he's calling forth a great chief. And then we saw this chief with a huge, huge headdress waving above the fire just like the eagle had and smiling and moving his head around and looking at us all. And everybody was just, you know, mind-blown. And um, then the rest of the night was not like that. It was just chanting and prayers. Um, so I stayed there for, we stayed for an extra week and experienced uh, one other miraculous ceremony. It was called the UIPI ceremony. Uwipi, uh, Y-U-P. Um. Hmm, I was told not to talk about this ever <laughs> by Henry Crowdog all those years ago. <laughs> it's almost 50 years ago. And don't speak of this, you gotta talk to about, go, don't go to Manhattan and talk about this. You know, okay, I won't. So I basically have a couple of times, but not really. The Wippi ceremony is that you go into a darkened room and spirits come and go and you pray. And the spirits are like lightning, and they fly around. And uh, the medicine men are in there, but people are sitting in a circle, just like we all would. And you know, it's like the typical prayer. The what? The guy next to me, who is the local guy, he said, "Wakatanka, Wakatanka." But my, my, my back axle on my Dodge pickup is, is is messed. It's messed. Can you please help me with this? I need your help. I can't afford another one. Just like that, you know. I thought, oh my God, I was praying for world peace like some kind of beauty queen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I experienced these miraculous events <laughs> in, in South Dakota and I never forgot them. And um, uh, my God, other things ensued from it with Leonard. Uh, but Leonard Crowdog is still alive and doing very well, I think, relatively well. And Henry is gone. Henry's gone. Uh, I had many other experiences with him. I mean, I could spend the whole, I guess, you know, I had another, even, okay, I had another experience which just makes those experiences look silly. <laughs> it makes them look like, you know, a sitcom, really. Because wow. I, I lived there and they, they did things to make me crazy. All of us, the four of us that went together, they, they did things to just make us crazy. What are you, what's that? What are you doing now? What are you doing was, oh my God, you know, like that kind of thing. You, you know about this. It's no different from any cities anywhere, where at the end of the day, it's a question of how much love it, dis, it, it distributes amongst the, the assembled people rather than, oh my God, this person is, is a Power. miraculous magician. You know? Yeah. So that's, I hope that had some, you
0: know, resonance. Mm. You know, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Yeah, it was. You know, you, you say, uh, he said to you, you know, you shouldn't, don't, don't be talking about this. It reminded me of Neem Karoli Baba telling Maharaji, telling Ramdas, do not talk about me. Mm. And he said, when I, you know, this is another billion times I've said this, but a couple of years ago, I, I asked him why he did it, and he said, well, I had a jewel i could not not share it and um to me that's the uh the core of who ramdas is was absolutely the core and where we would all hope to get to one day so you're telling of this thing and I, i'm here you know everybody will be uh listening to this and it's um well it, the, 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 i'm sorry no, no, just to say that the, the reality of the experience, it does a couple of different things. For, first of all, I was like, wow, I mean, this absolutely uh, is the same ground that I was used to when I went to India, where the Neemkaroli Baba, Maharaji, did these kinds of things to stop your mind. So... That it struck me, your mind was stopped dead in its tracks, and then, of course, you were led into love and unity, and that extraordinary feeling of being around a few hundred people and, and all being and being in that one with them is something beautiful to share. It gives us all uh, another leg to stand on. That. It gives us a way of, of of having more intent to letting to to really letting go, to really um, mm. embodying discrimination. For instance, by virtue of really understanding our separation, our motives are all about defense and separation and um, uh, control and fear, as you were talking before. And so, this gives an inspiration. It's possible. It's mm. absolutely possible. The other thing that I thought about is, it's of course uh, quite a big thing these days about um, appropriating cultures, mm. yep. and and many, I mean, we're in the West, and many people certainly do that, and and maybe aren't too aware of those motivations. And what they're doing, whether it be financial or power or whatever it may be, uh, at the same time, to me, there's a, everyone has mixed motivations across the board. It's just a matter of like you today in telling this story, there was no motivation for anything but sharing mm. the deep unified field experience that you had. And the extraordinary nature of it—that they, they brought you—and how many white people were were there in that few hundred uh, people? Four, right? Just, so just obviously, this isn't—you know—that they, they don't allow this to happen. No. They only allow it to happen when they've got that total intuitive uh, mm. big yes, <laughs> and yeah. and then it then it happens. And so, this moment couldn't happen without. Uh, Everyone knowing that, you know, 50 years later, you or however it is, you're going to share this and it's going to have whatever effect. Every individual is going to go through the story and come out um, something a little bit different, perhaps.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I I, I would imagine most people – I I was not – Let's say this was, I know it was 1973, so I'd already met Randas and I'd already become aware of, of the, the great master and, and, and the guru and, and of, of that. But I hadn't, I hadn't actually experienced anything that blew me, as you perfectly said, you know, it uh, just stopped me in my tracks. Mm. And so it's still, you know, the Christians call it an article of faith. And I I sort of like the expression because it's still an article of faith for me. When I sort of start dropping, drooping, uh, losing it, being discontented, or just being plain lost, you know, for a a moment, even sometimes, or longer, I do call upon that experience as an article of faith. It happens a lot over the last half century. I'll just remember, oh God, I was in that Hogan and he did that thing, and they they talked to, in the, the words they used to describe um, the unified field were Wakantanka, the great-grandfather, you know. And um, it, it has resounded with me all those years. But I never forgot the fact that at that time, at that particular time, there was this war going on between the FBI and the, and, and the Wounded Knee yeah. thing. And, and they were very involved with that. Leonard was the spiritual advisor to the Wounded Knee movement and was, uh, you know, constantly under surveillance and all of that. So when he met with us in New York, uh, we were aware. I I knew about who he was, uh, but I didn't think I'd ever meet him or anything. And what happened was that they chose this particular group of people um, because they wanted us. And he told me this because I did ask him that. You know, I asked Leonard at one point, why why are we here? You know, and he said, because somebody, somebody from, you know, New York City, and you're even from Europe originally, should know this stuff. You should know that it happens. That this is what this is what really makes us tick. This is what the the Native American Church is all about. It's about you know, and people dismiss us, and we even accept Christ consciousness totally into our thing. I mean, it's not like they have forced us upon us as a colonial uh, hegemony. We, we, we really understand that Christ consciousness is just as much a part of the of the explanation of of, of connectivity and and inter- interconnected karma and love as anything. So they get, totally get that. Also, they were highly sophisticated men and women. I mean, I I, I was so amazed at their. They lived in very bad conditions, and I saw them. And I went to the company store, you know, a couple of times for them, which was a place on the reservation, which was run by the government with really terrible food and sugary soft drinks and everything. And it was very, very revealing to see what was the actual situation that they lived in and what they were capable of invoking. Still, you know, like, um, and yeah. so. You know, that has... I do want to share it because I never did. And because, as you said, it, it, it just is a, a way... It's an emblem, of you, if you like. It's an emblem. Because I'm going to make it clear that I wasn't a, a, an easy lay here, you know, in, in, in any of this. Still, I'm not. I mean, you know, people say things to me sometimes, and I think, mm, <laughs> I don't even know if you've really experienced that motherfucker. But anyway, I, <laughs> at that time, I was much worse <laughs> And um, right. in the book, which I am now working on, um, I want to do a lot about it because there were several different points. I'll, I'll save. I'll, I'll save the Uhippie thing, and, and there's another thing that happened between me and Henry Crowdog, and he was in his mid seventies. Um, I'll save that. But you know, yes, it was an epiphany, hmm. yeah. and wow. I felt I felt that I was just mm-hmm. a lucky, lucky dude to even be invited to yeah. such a thing.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. No, no question. Yeah. Grace involved there. All right, next, uh, next topic. Oh. Okay, we'll have to see. Um, how about uh, compassion? Um, Got anything on compassion? Yes.
1: Um, when I was doing my TV series in Boston and GBH in the 60s, uh, William Buckley Jr. Um, was doing a series called "Firing Line" for PBS at the same time. Who? William Buckley Jr. Oh, the uh, the conservative originator of the National Review and and the the first person to recommend Reagan to be the president. And I'd watch him on TV, and and be so full of anger and rage. And um, then the head of WGBH station. Hartford Gunn was his name, asked me, he said, Listen, um, Buckley wants to do a a, a thing in, in Boston to make sure that WGBH is is gonna be right behind his show because Farron and I had just been taken in second incarnation, I guess, by by NET and, and and Channel Two in Boston, Channel Thirteen in New York. So they said, So we'd like we'd like you to interview him and I was appalled, you know, because my series was all about, you know. Frank Zappa and acid and love and beads and granola. And I, you know, I just didn't really think that I was going to be doing this. But they insisted. Somebody had this perverse idea. So it, the, the interview was in, um, I believe, late December 1967. And um, I was in London for two weeks before that to see my mom and my friends in England. And um, I'd been there for about, no, I was, I'd been there about a week, I guess, and then suddenly I got this dreadful flu, which I never get. I never go on since, I think. Just horrendous. It made me completely dysfunctional and grumpy. And I just was in bed in a hotel for most of the time. I couldn't walk, I was so weak. And um, I'd taken with me all of William Buckley's paperback Books, there weren't that many. No, there really. He wrote three novels at that time. I took them with me, so I had to read them. You know, and one was a spy novel, one was something else, one was something about Reagan. I read them all. there's nothing else to do. I didn't have any of my spiritual books there. I was sick, you know, and everything. So I read them, and then I flew back on the morning of the evening interview with um, with William Buckley Jr. and I, I, dunno I don't remember why. It was snowing in London. There was some weird thing whereby I should have come back two days before. I ended up arriving in Boston a matter of hours before my interview with Buckley. And you got to remember that in 1967, he was like the equivalent of, oh, God knows. There's no one now. But, you know, maybe um, oh George Bush, senior, or, you know, those kind of people. And I was going to meet him, and I was still really ill. So I get to the studio in in Alston, in Cambridge, and um, there's a huge crowd of hangers on there from the station, including the head of the station and the head of programming, and I'm just a total mess. And, you know, I'm blowing my nose and feeling terrible. And they pretend not to notice that. And meanwhile, I'm so ill, I can't even, and then he arrives, and he doesn't have any kind of retinue, he comes with one person and, they quickly introduced me to him, and we were about half an hour from, from shooting, from setting up, you know, doing it in the studio, and it was going to be live, hand taped, and he said to me, um, Mr. Silver, uh, can we have a moment, uh, do you have a green room here, have a moment? I said, oh, yes, sir, absolutely, yeah, and I led him to a green room. And he shut the door and he sat down and he looked at me and said, Seems to me, Mr. Silva, that you're dreadfully poorly. I said, yeah. He said, Are you ill? I said, Yeah. And and you you want to do this ill? I said, Yes, we can't. Do you realize how much energy is gonna go out of your system if you do this television show with me? I I we should call a doctor. I said, Mr. Buckley, I'm really not that ill. He said, you look terrible. <laughs> I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> and for about 10 or 15 minutes, he refused the idea of doing the show. Because he said, I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of risky for you to be in front of the lights and this pressure. I, I, I'd gladly come back. So let's just not do it. But I prevailed because I knew the station wouldn't do this again, you know, and I prevailed. And he was extremely interesting. I have the footage, you know, have the full hour with me and Buckley. He was great, you know, I asked him about the Beatles. He was very dismissive. I asked him about Allen Ginsberg and the Eastern religion. He said, well, why on earth are they rejecting Christianity? Why are people rejecting that? Just valid, more valid. We're born with that, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm And then Reagan, and we talked about the Stones, we talked about, you know, it was ridiculous and fantastic and wonderful. (laughs) And then about Mm -hmm. two months later, he wrote to me, and said, I absolutely enjoyed being interviewed by you more than anyone, and there's nothing I like more than a a true British socialist, which you are, (laughs) sir. And if there's anything I can do for you, I hope you've recovered from your illness. He was so sweet. And then about two weeks after that, I'm reading his column in the New York Times, and he started by saying, a really interesting British friend of mine pointed out to me that I was a tremendous snob about the Beatles, so I talked to my children, particularly Christopher Buckley, and I asked him, should I be more respectful to the Beatles? And he said, absolutely. So I decided to buy the records. So I've been listening to them, and yes, Mr. Silver, you're right. Oh. So he was totally delightful to me, and in fact oh. he was actually a, a, a mental construct enemy to me. He was the absolute enemy. You know, he was the, mm. the, 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 the brilliant spokesman of the right wing and influenced millions of people with his conservative philosophy. Now, for what we just experienced out there for the last four years, he's like Karl Marx compared with what we just experienced, because at least he was a gentle person. He was actually a very gentle, sweet man hmm. and had real principles. Hmm. And so that's his compassion towards me, which lasted a few months. You know, we corresponded, started with him feeling compassion for me, even though he'd taken the trouble to come from New York City to Boston to be with this unknown English talk show host. And um, I felt the compassion coming from him, even in the letters that he wrote to me. Mm. Wow. So you can't fucking judge. You know, we're yeah. all children of God.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the lesson of the day here with the the deep polarization that we've talked about forever in the last years uh that's just look at that little opening a huge never mind little huge opening for a little bit of compassionate caring, a little bit of kindness right? changed your whole thing, just twirled it right away around, but it didn't mean that he was going to suddenly be a big beatles fan it's funny that later that you know a few months later he actually turned and yeah. and then said what he said to you but yeah he he went it doesn't matter I, you know, no. I don't know how do we get to where it doesn't matter in terms of what somebody else believes so strongly i i it's it's i don't have uh, i have not gotten there myself Uh, in terms of being in any kind of uh, dialogue with somebody that I felt was uh, just um, completely ignorant and uncaring, basically.
1: Well, that's the problem, that if you're actually having to deal with outright, you know, um, coldness of heart and cruel dispensation, which is, I think, what we saw, then it's a real hard, then it's a hard mix. It's a strange brew that you have to come up with. You know, it really is a strange brew. Yeah, but you, you have no choice but to come up with it because otherwise, well, your whole life is going to be full of this sort of, you know, I mean, the reason I don't really look at Facebook anymore much, really, is because I see even from the people I love and on whose I agree with, this sort of perpetual um, anger. Uh, which is very infectious, you know, and you sort of go, yeah, yeah, that Michael, yeah. yeah, creep, you know. But he may well be a creep, but it's not you. that You're not hurting him by hating him. You're hurting yourself. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And that's that's, that's a cliche, hard,
0: you know, hard lesson for us all. Really, was that a good example for compassion? Totally. I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't prethink that. I just thought it came to my head. A yeah. 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 And, uh, Okay, here's one. Now, this we might have to get a little bit more general as to uh, the theme because it's relationships. And everyone jumps right away to uh, a romantic relationship, a filial relationship, uh, like that, when relationship is, can be much larger. We're all in relationship to each other. Uh, in one way or another, the people that we see on a day to day and um, that we've known for many years, and, uh, I don't know. You, you can tell me if I'm reaching here in terms of no you
1: know. I, 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 my sort of matured, if you like, attitude to this is that you know, maturation in in the dealing with relationships is certainly something that doesn't come like a flash of light. It takes having experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly in yourself and maybe in others. And that I'm much less uptight about it than I was when I was actually young and married and everything. Because, you know, um, I, I think I think that my expectations were just strange. I don't think they were even based upon some kind of tangible mood or state that I wanted to be in in the marriage. I just sort of did it. And... um now, even though I don't regret a second of those marriages, I really don't regret one single thing. Now, you know, it's just, it seems obvious, obvious to me stuff that I, I, that I look at from my past and other people's past and think, how could we have thought that? You know, how could we have thought that that was going to turn out well, you know? And a lot of that is to do with, with lust, and therefore the relationship becomes channeled within that, you know, Therein, in the brain, the, 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 the mm. neurological network of lust is a very strong one in our neurological system. And it, it's called up very quickly. Uh, it, it comes very fast. It's like super fast, like super Amazon Prime, next day, next morning, one hour away from now, one second away, wow, mm-hmm. that's someone I would really mm-hmm. like to do it with. And so the relationships were entirely based on that in my 20s, apart from my marriages when I wasn't married, uh, usually turned out really badly when they started with that. But how the heck are you gonna persuade people not to, apart from being totally didactic and boring and, 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 and oppressive, frankly, how do you tell your children, how do you tell people that relationships with, as you say, with people um, are just versions of a relationship with the divine, obviously. How do you do that when you're motivated by the way someone looks, which always fades? I, I mean, I, that's not a cynical statement. It's just true. It doesn't deserve to last, so it doesn't last. I mm-hmm, mean, the, and mm-hmm. Holiness has put this many times. He's talked about, you know, that possession is the center of lust, and it's the enemy of relationship.
0: Yeah. All right. So, do we have a
1: story though? That's the- oh, a story. Um, whew. Um, well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so many of them, really, because the relationships, as you say, as you just said, are with everything and everybody, you know. And um, I just feel like uh, my relationships are, like most people think, incredibly diverse and varied. So that, um, for instance, uh, a very dear friend of both of ours passed away a couple of weeks ago. uh, Mr. Paul Sloman, who was a sort of legendary figure for Columbia Records and uh, an amazing man. And, and in the 80s, um, Raghu and I, and KD and Sridhar, worked with Paul on a video called Jazz Dogs. <laughs> which every time I see KD, he asks me if I have a copy of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I gave him a copy of it. Anyway, and we met Paul. So I met Paul Sloman after you introduced me to him. And I didn't see much of Paul in the next, God knows, 35, 40 years, but when I spoke to him on the phone or when I did see him, I felt such a deep love for him that he was just a grand guy, unpretentious, didn't think he was any big shit, had no problem absorbing the, 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 the spiritual vibe of, of all of us and, and, and the, the, the various matches of taste and, and, and judgment and choosing of our lives. He was just someone who accepted you, and if you could accept him, he was such a down-to-earth being, and yet at the same time he emanated a real love. I mean, when you were with him, he loved you. He just ate you up. He loved you up. Mm-hmm. And, um, so my relationship with Paul was distant, not because of any any kind of wobble or wiggle in that in that mutual feeling, but because I didn't see him. He was he was gone and 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 ill for a long time, and he wasn't on this coast. So. Um, I just threw that up because I know you know him, and that mm-hmm. that kind of relationship is what, you're, what, what makes life worth living, I think. You know, the, the, there are people you just can't help but love, and then what about the people that you just can't help but not love? That's the more difficult and more Buddhist-centric. Buddhist
0: <laughs> to, you know, yeah, you know. to say the least, yeah. No, he, uh, I think we You see, I've carefully avo- avoided talking about my well, I don't know. I mean, marriage. I, I, I didn't think you were putting anything in the book that would be a, uh, you know, no, the, potentially no, scandalized. By, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I know stuff, but I, I won't I mean, say a word. I, you can't leave it. Like that.
1: Um, no, um, relationships are the, one of the hardest things in life. I think Ramdas has said this uh, quite a bit. The, the hardest thing to actually handle. Are these things that we set up for ourselves? You know, we create the construct, oh, she's beautiful, he's beautiful, that's beautiful, I want, her, let's please live together and share our lives together. And sometimes <laughs> it happens, mm-hmm. uh, but mostly it, it has a it turn. And then dealing with the turn is the key, right? So then, yeah. you know, it's the same with mm-hmm. teachers. You know, sometimes you find out things about teachers and, and you decide, I can't be taught by, by him or her because she or he did that. Mm-hmm. In which yep. case, that's ridiculous because, you know, are you not going to listen to any Phil Spector record ever? No, probably not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad example. <laughs> bad, bad. Especially what he did to Leonard Cohen on that record. Oh, yeah, excuse Jesus. that. I,
1: but I'm just throwing uh, up the first thing that I thought about yeah. that I couldn't be a, have a relationship. I met him <laughs> yeah. once. I actually met him.
0: Oh. Is he it in was, the
1: book? <laughs> no, it was a Doc Holmes' funeral. Uh, and on the other side, Doc Palmas. Oh, yeah, friend. yeah. And yeah. Phil Spector loved Doc and, and Beyond Words. And so there was this um, event. It was, you know, a, a funeral at this play, very well-known place. I've forgotten it. You know it. It's on 75th and Broadway or somewhere. And we all went. And, you know, people like Lou Reed were there and sort of celebrities, but mainly not celebrities. And at one point, some member of the family said, and I would really like to introduce uh, one of Doc's dearest friends, F- uh, Phil Spector, which we were all like, what? And he, <laughs> he came out and he talked in another voice, not like his own voice. Instead of talking like, well, yeah, you know, man, I love working with the Ronettes, man, and I love doing you know, whatever, no, it was like, I can't even talk about Doc Palmers without <laughs> all kinds of darkness. The darkness of death. You know, and there's like 100 people in this room going, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, someone had to come on the little dais and say, Mr. Specter,
0: <laughs> Thank it's you. Time, time to go. <laughs> the hook. Phil Specter got the hook. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh. You see, we like mind rolling because the mind just rolls from one ridiculous thing to another. And it's great. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's, it's life and life only as one of my gurus.
0: Uh, yeah, call it. <laughs> uh, so that's that's it for relationships. We've dealt with that. Yeah, we've gone finished. But uh, yeah, uh, well, and that Phil Spector story is not going to be in the book. So you see, we've got already a bonus story <laughs> yeah. without a book. It's so great. Yeah,
1: no, I'm not putting that book. But you know, um, truthfully, I think Ramdas did say this, and it was one of the words of wisdoms. That uh, Love Serve Remember puts out not that long ago. I mean, like within months of about you know, if you, if you can deal with relationships, you can deal with anything because it's yeah. the hardest thing to it's the hardest mm-hmm. thing to to handle. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. to show treat, consistent love for another human being that you mm. might be having a real hard time with is very difficult. All right. Like, well,
0: look, worth it. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Are Everything we is worth that it. Is. Well, I don't know. Um, I mean, we've... we've I, I think I've been a little in, in, inadequate, not spiritually. <laughs> no, I... Oh. No, I really do feel it. it's like... Okay, maybe you've got a, sh- a... We have time for a short uh, bit from, from well, anything in the book that will okay. uh, redeem your... Uh, any kind of pontifications that you've been <laughs> <laughs> embarking on in no, this no, podcast. No. Well, I'm looking now, and... Um,
1: yeah a very short one uh, remember when we were doing no nukes ragas which was in yeah. editing was in 1980 actually and um we we edited it we were many editors and i was directing the edit at the time Well, let's we, say what it
0: is Not, i mean oh, no uh, nukes I mean. was
1: actually considered to be one of the first you know um activist films against mm. nuclear energy and 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 you know Bruce Springsteen and James Taylor and And, you know, all these incredible people were in it, Carly and Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown, all contributed everything to it and were just marvelously um, cooperative. But I was basically in this building called the Film Building on 44th and, and 9th every day and every night, you know, and I would leave at like two or three in the morning because that's we were so... There was so much work to do, you know, shooting 12 cameras, five nights with all these lumina- luminaries and doing it with them, particularly with Jackson, you know, was very pressurizing and lovely, but pressurizing. One night, um, I worked very late and we were working on Springsteen stuff and he'd left. He left at about one o'clock and I was left just with the editor and then there was no one, just me. And I was just sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? And then I looked out the window and it was pouring with rain. And this is way before Uber or anything. Self, you know, we were primitive in those days. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I get into, I get into. I haven't got a ring or anything. I leave the place. I lock it up. I get in the elevator, and then one floor down from the floor I was in, the elevator opens, and four I don't know, five cleaning ladies, late at night, together, uh, Latina women, uh, came in, accompanied by a certain Paul Newman and um what yeah paul newman who was also editing a film of his or working on editing a film of his in the film center and when they walked in i could see that they were together kind of by the way he was talking to them and we get in and we go five floors whatever no more it was 12 floors I think. and he's talking to them uh in spanish as if they were his sisters and they were talking at him with awe but nevertheless we're just talking when we got to the street he was the only one with an umbrella none of the women had one i didn't have one. he didn't care about me but he accompanied each one of these women uh, to find a cab for them and pay for it mm-hmm. it's significantly because most of them lived in Queens, I think. And he just ran out in the street in the pouring rain and held the umbrella over each one, then ran back and did it for another one. And then there were five of them, as I remember. And then I said to him, it's all right, you don't have to do that for me. And he was just laughing in the rain, like Gene Kelly in the film. you know. He was laughing at the rain and just helping these women. And they were just so in love Mm. with him. They knew him. I mean, it wasn't like they'd never met him before. Obviously, they were cleaning. They were there frequently when he was working there. Mm. And I just saw this look in his eye. beautiful blue eyes and he was soaking wet as it so happened and i just looked at him and i thought there's a mensch Hmm. there's a real mensch there's a famous mensch you know (laughs) and i loved him for just a moment i never met him again or anything didn't know him but it was just such a lovely moment after a hard night's work you know to see wow i just saw a real movie
0: star do something beautiful The real nice. thing. Compassion. That's another. Yeah, exactly. Bits, yeah. Compassion and kindness. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So, Those so are cool. my stories,
1: now. And If you want any more, go pay for them.
0: <laughs> well, right. Finish the damn thing and we will, for God's sake. Well, if it weren't
1: for you, I'd, I'd probably not be doing this. But I am doing it now. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about that. You know,
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, absolutely.
1: It's not so hard. I don't have to interview
0: anybody. I don't have to do anything. So, what's wrong with me? Nothing. You better do it before you lose all those, you know, your mind, basically. You won't be able to remember anything. Yes. Fortunately, I've made good notes. (laughs) Okay. Good. (laughs) All right. Well. uh, Next time,
1: I'm going to interview you about what you were doing.
0: Okay. Well, you were going to – remember, you wanted to start a podcast as well. Well, I do.
1: I do. And Mm -hmm. I have –
0: I do, actually.
1: Particularly well, with this computer now, and I can actually make it happen. The other one is beginning to die.
0: For Cacht. um yeah. <laughs> okay. Whenever you want, everybody will be uh, writing in about uh, encouraging you to do so. Well,
1: I, but, I think there are lots of things to talk about.
0: Uh, yeah, well, that's not an issue. Not, not to mention speaking to you know, you know, so many. Incredible people from all walks of life. So it would be a mitzvah, as they say in Yiddish, I love a the very word. good thing. Uh, anyhow, thanks for being here, though, this afternoon. That's great. I love doing it. It's great. Yeah, yeah, um, it's it's a delight, just a delight. Uh, and everybody were, of course, when this book gets finished, you will, you know, you'll be tired of hearing about it through Be Here Now Network, but. And Ramdas, but uh, so I'm encouraging. You know, I'm after Dave, like he says. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I'm
1: doing. It. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sufficiently, sufficiently scared of Roger now for four, six <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs>
0: scared? Oh, no, he doesn't. So he doesn't full of me. shit. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am. Don't believe anything I say. That's the first thing. <laughs> anyhow, yeah. So there we yeah. go. Another installment, part two of mingling with remarkable men and women. yeah, Yeah. You uh, included, my, my man. Uh, you included. Love you, love you. Uh, okay, everybody, this is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And what do we have? Oh, oh Dave, did you hear um, – we did the thing with Alan Watts and Ramdas. Nathan put together a, a wonderful uh, work with uh, Alan's son, Mark, and, and it's a beautiful hour-long podcast, back and forth, about you know very uh, relevant subjects, topics. You would love it. Okay, Everybody else out there.
1: I, I mean, I listened to Alan Watts this morning, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's I Take funny. a little
0: yeah. dose of his What's on Spotify, which is a lot. So you yeah. told me you were doing something like that. So, it's a it's a a mix of of Ramdas and Alan, and oh. it's on Ramdas here and now. Just go take a look. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. And w- we have something phenomenal. This is the first time I'm I'm even talking about it because that we're in Ojai. There's a thing called uh, Ojai Foundation, which unfortunately uh, much of it got burned down a number of uh, three years ago uh, in the fires that were around here. But uh, they're back up and happening and. But many years ago, or, you know, Roshi Joan Halifax was a principal behind Ohi Foundation and many, uh, they have this beautiful tree there and people would come and teach and it's under the teaching tree and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and Ramdas and Roshi Halifax and Rupert Sheldrake and uh, Robert Bly and Gary Snyder and uh, Allen Ginsberg, we're all there. So we're going to do a series. That'll be a podcast, Under the Teaching Tree. Uh, So really kind of stoked about that. Um, Some just phenomenal material. So that's what's coming up on Be Here Now Network, everybody. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check everything out. And we will see you next week. Again, thank you, Dave. Thanks, Roger. Speak to you later.